When you become a widow, the heartache can be overwhelming. You feel lost, you feel broken, you feel alone, and sometimes you feel like the pain will never go away. I believe that every widow has the capacity to endure, the power to overcome, and the determination to create a new life filled with meaning and purpose. That's why I wanted to create a show called Widow 180. People tell me they come here for the positivity. They listen to Widow 180, the podcast, to be inspired. They come to Widow 180 to be reminded that they have options, that the pain of loss is not a life sentence. Widow 180 is about turning tragedy, loss, and fear into strength, creativity, and a new passion for life. My mission each week is to arm you with these powerful stories of transformation and knowledge so that you can navigate life after loss. I'm Jen Zwink. I'm so glad you're listening. Let's get to the episode. Hello, listeners out there. Glad you can join us today. My guest this week, Christine Jameson, has an interesting story that she's going to share, and I'm going to let her get into all the details, but here's a sneak peek. So her husband, Kyle, passed away in 2016, and Christine decided to have Kyle's baby this year, and she just gave birth in September to a beautiful baby girl. Now, I know there's a lot of you out there who are debating this same decision about getting pregnant and having a baby on your own. And so I wanted to have someone on the show who's been through it. So let's hear what she has to say. Um, Welcome to the podcast, Christine. Thank you. And let's get started um, with just what happened with Kyle, if you could start there. Sure. So he was a firefighter. And he was always healthy and whatnot. And he went for his hazmat physical. So he was on the hazmat team. And um, one of the reasons he liked being on the hazmat team was because they do a really in-depth annual physical. So he went for the physical and they ran labs. And they got a call pretty much immediately after saying, you can't work as a firefighter right now. Your platelets are really low and your liver enzymes are elevated and something is wrong. So um, he immediately was, you know, not understanding what was wrong. We went to um, our doctor. She sent him for some, um, an ultrasound and then referred us over to another doctor. So I looked up the other doctor that we were going to and found that it was an oncologist. So we walked into the oncologist a couple days later and they, she walked in the room and immediately was like, you have T cell lymphoma and you have a 50% chance of a cure. So it was pretty overwhelming. That's how you found out the Mm -hmm. was the referral from the doctor. Yeah. So we had gone for the ultrasound and they found some enlarged lymph nodes and he was thinking maybe it was some kind of virus or some kind of like immune response, not necessarily cancer. We certainly weren't thinking cancer. And then until we saw that we were going to an oncologist and then we kind of, yeah. So she asked, um, you know, she, she walked in and she said that he had cancer and how bad it was. And she was like, you know, this is a really weird cancer for somebody like you, somebody so young to have. She's like, were you ever exposed to anything? And he was like, well, I'm a firefighter. And she was like, well, that's where this is coming from. Really? Okay. So she thinks, you know, she said that it was from all of his exposures during the fires. Oh, my God. So that's a fairly 
common thing then. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you were telling me now at this time, this was April of 2015. Yeah. Okay. And you were pregnant at the time. Right. Okay. How far along were you? Um, I had the baby in June, so I was seven months. Seven months pregnant when he was diagnosed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was right before my baby shower. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. Um, So he, um, at that time, you were telling me that New Hampshire didn't have a presumptive cancer law. And when you told me that, I, I really wasn't sure what that was. Can you kind of explain what that is exactly? Sure. So I think we all know that firefighters are exposed to different carcinogens when they are in fires. And that's why many states have a law that's called the presumptive cancer, you know, law or bill or whatever. And basically what that means is that if a firefighter gets one of these listed types of cancers that um, it's proven that they are two to five to 10 times more likely to get, then it's presumed that it's due to being um, on the job and it would be work-related. So it would fall under a worker's comp coverage. Um, It would also be considered a line of duty death if the firefighter dies from that cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, So in New Hampshire, we didn't have that policy. So... Um, If a firefighter were to die from cancer, even if it was more or less proven to be job related, there would be no benefits. So when Kyle died, I immediately lost my health insurance. I lost, um, I didn't get his line of duty benefit. So the the life insurance was only one times his base salary versus being a significantly higher amount. Um, He didn't get to have a line of duty funeral, which is, you know, a really big deal for these firefighters with the respect and whatnot that, um, you know, that that's, that's a really big deal. So there's a lot to it. He didn't get that. Mm -mm. Oh, that's a shame. Now so we've been working hard to fix that. Yes. Did you guys kind of go into action right away trying to change that? And what did you do to try and change that? Yeah. So I think, you know, I thought it was really important that we kind of yell it from the rooftop. So I worked with our um, local government and our local fire departments and spoke at um, several different um, political events to, you know, discuss this and, and give the, uh, the, politicians um some perspective on why this bill is so important we had a lot of arguments with our local government where they said you know well of course this would be covered under workers comp and you know you guys don't really pay these big astronomical bills for the for your cancer care and whatnot and i you know explained to them of course we did it's not covered under workers comp that's the entire thing that we're talking about here yeah. none of this is covered it's not considered a line of duty related thing so no so there's a lot of misinformation out there even with our local government um yeah that needed to be fixed so the good news is is that i actually just got notification that the first um person to be awarded the consideration of their cancer being line of duty just happened to a a friend of mine so her husband died um somewhat recently and he it's i believe it's i think it's officially been ruled as being line of duty and um they should get the benefits that they're entitled to Oh my God. So they, they finally changed it. This Mm -hmm. five years. Right. And so enough, enough changes have happened that, that people are starting to benefit. 
Oh, wow. So that's great. That is great. That's great. Um, so yeah, you had, and you were trying to do all of that while you were pregnant or was this after the baby was born? Cause all uh, of this happening at the same time. Well, so all my argument about the line of duty stuff was after Kyle died. We didn't oh, have to okay. deal with that while he was alive. Okay. Okay. Um, I should, I shouldn't say that he did do some projects and some, um, research and and worked with the fire department in some capacity to try to work towards those goals and, and whatnot while he was alive. Um, but I wasn't super involved in that and there wasn't a ton of time that he focused on that. It was primarily after he died. Yeah. Um, so Kyle started chemo right away Mm -hmm. in April. His diagnosis was in April. He started right away in April. Yes. Um, and then you said, Liam, your baby boy was mm-hmm. born in June. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were bringing Liam to the chemo treatment. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then how did, how did all of that go? So he was our little chemo buddy. So <laughs> we kind of just, um, had a little bit of a mobile maternity leave that wasn't really maternity leave. So we um, he went to chemo often. Uh, sorry. Uh, so Kyle went to chemo often. He went most days um, for labs or fluids or um, immunity injections or chemo or whatever. So we spent most of our days at the hospital. So we kind of just went there most days and spent a lot of our time there. We tried to make it as fun as we could. He was always in the best spirits and was just the most fun person to be around anyway. So the fire guys were great. Uh, They set up um, a rotation so that people could sign up to be visitors. So for all of his chemos, we had somebody who would, um, they would pick us up if we were going to Boston or they would meet us over there if we were going to our local hospital. And, um, they would hang out for chemo with us and make Kyle laugh and, and spend some quality time. And Kyle really liked it because he said that he never got that one-on-one time with the guys that he got during chemo. It was always like at a party or drinking or, you know, doing whatever. So he really, really appreciated that quality time. You know, he'd get, you know, four hours to just sit and shoot the shit with one of his friends. And he, he really liked that. Those were special moments for him. And we had some days we had, you know, tons of people, friends, their kids coming. So depending on our little posse, they would put us in this special room so that we could, you know, kind of be separated because there was so much of us, you know, going on. Um, and we tended to be a little on the noisy side and then you throw in the baby and trying to figure out how to, you know, do the nursing thing and and raising this baby at chemo and the chemo nurses kind of became like more surrogate moms of mine, you know, helping me figure out how to wrangle this baby and take care of my husband at the same time. So it was quite the experience. Yeah. Trying to make the best of it. For sure. Awesome that all, all of the his friends were able to come and have that quality of time with him. That's it was amazing. Not very many people can say that chemo was a lot of fun, but for sure Kyle could. And he looked forward to going to chemo because he knew he'd be like, who's my sidekick for the day going to be, you know, what (laughs) fun friend am I going to get to see that's going to hang out for the day? So he loved it. Yeah. And at this time you were also trying to do a bone marrow transplant with, and clinical trials and just kind of anything you could do. um, At that point. Yeah. So, we, the plan was a bone marrow transplant, um, but Dana-Farber forgot to 
when they, they deemed him in remission and ready for the bone marrow transplant, but they forgot to check his bone marrow to see if there was still cancer left. They had only done a scan. So when we went down to Dana-Farber, they, Kyle had asked them why he needed to have a bone marrow trans, bone marrow biopsy done to diagnose his cancer, but didn't need one to deem that he was in remission. And the doctor was like, ooh, is the cancer in your bone marrow? And Kyle was like, yeah. So we picked up the phone, made a call, and he was like, oh, they'll see you in 10 minutes. So we got brushed down to get a bone marrow biopsy. Moral of the story, a couple phone calls later, a couple days later from the doctor, he's like, ooh, there's a little cancer left, small speed bump. We're going to give you a little more chemo. Then another phone call, ooh, there's a little more than we initially thought even left. So now we're going to give you even a little bit more chemo, but it should be fine. So we went for a second opinion to MassGen, and they were like, I'm scared of your cancer. And they told us that his cancer was chemo-resistant, um, and they kind of started making a plan and said that we had like a 20% chance of something working. So we tried a few things. Nothing worked fantastically. We tried a trial. That didn't work. Um, and basically, MassGen kind of got to a point where they were starting to give up. Um, his doctor called and said that his... Um, cancer had exploded on his oh. most recent scan. So I booked flights that night for New York and we showed up on the doorstep of Sloan Kettering and begged for help. And they admitted us and um, they had a much more aggressive and um, amazing approach to everything. We had the most amazing doctor who was not just going to give up and just give him the same thing that wasn't working. Yeah. So they fixed him, got his cancer under control and got him ready for his bone marrow transplant. Um, and then we went for the bone marrow transplant and, um, he ended up having a complication from that. That's very rare that causes all of your organs to shut down. So we were in the ICU for about a month after the transplant and his body just couldn't come back from all that shutdown. Okay. So at that time you're in Manhattan the whole time. Correct. Right. So we moved from was, New Hampshire to Manhattan in February of 2016. And that was about three months, you said? That right. He died May 15th. May 15th. Okay. And you did say like the firefighter community, they, they kind of rallied around. They were amazing. You guys for that too. How did they, how did they help you and support you during those few they, months? They helped in so many ways. They did the most amazing fundraisers um, at home while we were in New York and even before. Um, they raised enough money that they paid for our apartment out in New York City, which was $6,500 a month. Um, they raised some spending money for us and all sorts of stuff. So I was able to give Kyle kind of like a normal quality of life even though things were crazy. So we didn't have to get in like, you know, some kind of uncomfortable apartment. We got to get an apartment that he was comfortable with. We got to eat normal food and take out if we wanted to. And um, we had money to pay a babysitter so that I could be at the hospital with him and all that stuff. So it was our community, not just the firefighters, the whole entire like seacoast area of New Hampshire was just really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're very, very, very grateful for all of that. The, the support was like nothing you've ever seen before. Yeah. Um, so Kyle passed away <clears throat> in May. And how old was he at that time? He was 33. 33. And then Liam was not even a year. Right. He was 11 months. 11 months. 
Um, did you have any support from any other widows? Yeah. So, um, there was one mom that was in my mom group, um, that had lost her husband and survived that loss. And she was somebody that I was able to lean on. Her husband had had cancer as well. Um, so when things were really dark and I was worried about how I would survive what was about to happen, it was really, really helpful for me to have somebody like that to say, Oh my God, this is happening. Like, you know, how am I going to survive this? And she was like, you will, and I'll help you. And this is how it works. And then after he died, I pretty quickly connected with local widows and um, some widow support groups on Facebook. And they were kind of my lifeline. Those late nights when you're home by yourself and the rest of the world is spinning and your world stopped. um, Those are really, really dark times. So I went through a couple of really, really dark months. um, And my peers in the widow community were definitely my lifeline to see that they survived and to, to validate my feelings and to have somebody who understood was, was everything for me. Yeah. And going back to his, uh, Kyle's initial diagnosis, um, the doctor had talked to you guys about having more children at that time Mm -hmm. because he was Mm -hmm. about to start chemo. So you guys made the decision to freeze some sperm. Mm -hmm. And at that time, okay. So then after Kyle passed away, what were your thoughts about having another baby still? Did that, that that probably didn't jump into your mind right away. No, it did. Cause I was constantly thinking of it because I knew that I wanted two kids. So when you have one, a one-year-old, you kind of start that process of thinking, okay, now what's next? Yeah. My version was just a little different, but I mean, I had had a year of chemo and Kyle being diagnosed to have all these complicated conversations. So, you know, I think that in some ways I know a lot of, of people say, Oh, is it worse to lose your significant other suddenly or to go through a sickness or whatever? For us, I would say that I had it a lot easier because I got to go through all of that with him. I got to grieve the potential of his loss with him. I got to talk about how life would look like, what life would look like after he died with him, Um, all the while promising him that he wouldn't die and that I was going to make everything happen so that he wouldn't. But still, the reality is those conversations still have to happen and you have to acknowledge that, you know, when you're told you have a 50 or 20% chance of surviving, there's, those are legit numbers. So I had had a lot of time to think about how I would have a baby without him. And, um, you know, I used to talk to him. him. You did talk to him about that? Yeah. When we went to go, um, to do the, the banking, um, he wasn't totally sure if he wanted another kid because our first was really, really tough as a baby, um, super colicky and fussy and gassy and refluxy. And it was tough. So he wasn't positive about that, but he knew that I was kind of in charge of a lot of decision-making and he knew that if I wanted to have another baby, we were going to have another baby. So I, um, I just remember teasing him there and I'm like, well, if you die, I'm just going to make 10 more of you because I have, you're signing off on all this. I said, so I don't care how many kids you want to have. Cause I'm just going to, I'm just going to make a whole bunch of little Kyles to join this world because I'll miss you so much. And he laughed and that's um, awesome. <laughs> 
Yeah, so we certainly both knew that this was potentially coming. And as soon as I moved home from New York, I immediately made an appointment to with a fertility center to start the conversation about um, the process and whatnot. And then um, I had been home for a couple months, a handful of months, and things life started settling down a little bit from the constant chaos and stress and just unbearable stress. Um, All of a sudden, things got a little easier. My life got into a little bit of a routine. Liam started getting a little less fussy. um, And I was like, okay, things are finally settling a little. The last thing I need to do is add absolute utter chaos and go two under two, you know, and add a newborn right now. So I kind of chickened out for a little while and put it on the back burner. And then, you know, I would think about it constantly to say, okay, I really need to do this. I want to do this. I want to have another one of Kyle's babies, but God, it's going to be a lot of work. And the newborn stage is so hard and it's going to be, you know, I'm self-employed. I work way too much. Um, and to think of how I'm going to do this all on my own was a lot mentally to take on. So I, I procrastinated and, and finally, you know, decided recently and to pull the trigger and, so there was this little bit of back and forth just because you had been through it and <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> especially if Liam wasn't the easiest baby. So then you're like, right. handle this on my own. I don't know. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was still something that just kept staying in your mind. Like I want to do this. I right, for sure do this for sure. I want to do this. Um, and you didn't move like you were back in your house. Mm-hmm. You didn't. You didn't have any big moves or anything. Of, no, like selling your house because you said it oh, was no. that was your dream house together, and it was where you wanted. Right. To yeah, we um, just bought it like a year before that. Oh, just a year. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you were yeah, you were just in there. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then you're self-employed. What do you mm-hmm. do? Um, I own a medical supply pharmacy. Okay. I would like to invite you to get our latest freebie designed just for you. How to get your life back together after loss, a 10-step checklist. After countless hours of research, interviewing hundreds of widows, and through my own experience with grief, I have compiled this list of the 10 steps you need to take to put your life back together after losing a loved one. It's normal to feel overwhelmed and also normal to not know where to start when it comes to picking up the pieces of your shattered world. Here's where you start. You can get this free 10-step checklist at www.widow180.com forward slash freebie. That's www.widow180.com forward slash freebie. It's a lot of work. And yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, what do you feel like was your biggest struggle as a solo parent, um, you know, in that year after with Liam, just trying to get the routine down and everything, but what do you feel like that was the, the biggest struggle for you? It's definitely really hard trying to grieve and take care of yourself while having somebody that's more important than yourself to take care of. So it's also, it, you know, it's a catch 22. It's also really helpful because I had to get out of bed every morning and take care of Liam, but it's, definitely really hard to, you know, 
to do exactly that, to get up every single morning and never have a break, you know, and I never really got any time to take any downtime ever. I never got to take any time off from work. I never got to do anything. So that was really, really hard. But we, you know, kind of got into a little bit of a routine and I started relying on babysitters and hired kind of a whole herd of, of amazing babysitters that I needed. And, and, um, so kind of just, I guess, setting up my support network at home, it was, it was, I have great friends, um, you know, but they all have kids and whatnot. So it's just, it's really tricky doing it, doing it by yourself. So I, I guess creating my support network was probably the hardest thing and, um, creating our routine and our new normal. And I, and you're still having to take care of your house and all of the things around the house. Right. I had to figure out how to mow the lawn, how to use the snowblower, how, like what, where, what all these keys go to, how do I unlock the tool kit, the tool, um, the toolbox was locked and I didn't know how to get into it. And it's like, okay, like, you know, so, so much that stuff. And it's like, I can't ask him. I'm like, well, where's the baby thing that I need? Or where's the like, whatever, how do I, where do I put this heavy thing? I remember the smoke alarms went off in Liam's room um, in the middle of the night. And I had said to Kyle a hundred times, cause he has a loft in his room. And I was like, I need a ladder that I can get up there. What if you're working and I need to get up there? And he's like, Oh, whatever. Like, I'll, yeah, I will. It's fine. Yeah. And all he had was the world's heaviest ladder in there. And I was so mad at him. <laughs> it was probably <laughs> the only time I've ever been mad at him, but um, I was so mad at him for leaving me that damn ladder after he died that I couldn't get up to the loft. And I'm like, Oh my God, like stuff like that. It's like, well, how do I, I can't even pick up the ladder. Can't so even pick it up. It. Yeah. I'd I know. call the fire department and have them come out with a ladder and help me. And it was almost brutal. So it's, you know, all that stuff. And now almost five years later, now I have the right ladder there. I have, there's, you know, everything is where it needs to be so that I can maintain it on my own. I know how to use the lawnmower. I know how to use the snowblower. I know how to maintain the pool. I had to figure out all that stuff. And oh. It was just, it was a lot. I bought myself a battery, battery operated weed whacker because I could never figure out his. <laughs> and, uh, oh yeah. Don't ask know. me to pull the thing to start it because that it's, doesn't happen. Exactly. It's too hard. <laughs> so I had to figure out all that stuff and I, and I did. So that was kind of the first year or two of learning. Yeah. You said it was a learning curve oh my yeah. God. for mm-hmm. at least a year. I mean, all these things yeah. come up because you don't think about the fire alarm until... Until it's going off. So the battery goes dead like, like a year mm-hmm. later, and then you're like, oh, that thing. I guess. Yep, exactly. <laughs> come up. Um, well, tell me about your decision then to start dating. So that was um, – so for me, I think Kyle was the most amazing human being in the whole world. I am one of the luckiest people in the world because I married my soulmate. He was the man of my dreams. He was the most handsome, the kindest, the sweetest, the most fun. He was absolutely hilarious. He was the the best. And um, we were kind of annoyingly connected. Um, you know, my friends would tease me sometimes and be like, like, get can you give him some space? But I literally just loved him so much that I couldn't even stand it. So, and it was crazy sometimes because he'd be like, do you really need to sit this close to me? I'm like, yes, I love you. So we did everything together. We spent all of our time together. And, you know, when somebody asked me, like, how do you know if you're with the right person? You know, my explanation is that 
if you are doing anything in the world, any activity that you're doing, whether it's watching TV or going to the store or whatever, if you add your person, so if I added Kyle to that situation, like I'm going to Home Depot, okay? Now I go to Home Depot with Kyle, it's that much more fun and it's that much better. So that was how our relationship was. It's like, I'm having coffee. Well, now let's add Kyle to it and let's have coffee together. Yeah. Um, with my friends, let's add Kyle and I'll have even more fun. So we spent all of our time together. So in that's a catch 22 when it comes to moving forward, because on one hand, you already know that you had the best thing that ever existed. Um, and there's no replacing that. There's no filling that gap. There's nothing like that. But on the other hand, you also know that life is so much better when you have an amazing partner. So all of a sudden, the hole that was left in my life was so deep. Um, like I said, I went through a couple of really, really dark months that were really scary that we won't get into to scare the non-widowed type. The widows know what I'm talking about, but it's, it's that scary dark hole that um, nobody envisions that you're capable of going down. So you know, after those couple months, I realized I was like this, you know, this is, this is no way to live. I need to be happy for Liam. I need to start having fun. I need to live my life. Um, and again, like I said, life is so much more fun with a sidekick. You know, every minute of my day, I was constantly reminded of how alone I was and how much of a hole I had in my life. I hadn't pumped gas in years and I had to go and I had to get gas. When I ran out of gas, I used to just leave Kyle in my car and I'd take his and then I'd have a tank full of gas. So all of a sudden I have nobody's car to take when my car's empty on gas and I'm carrying, I'm having to empty the trash, you know, take the trash out every day. And he cooked dinner every night. So I'm coming home to no dinner and I'm having to make cook dinner for myself and my son and I'm doing all the chores and I'm carrying the heavy things and I'm doing the lawn and I'm like, this is no way to live. Um, so it was just, it, it became really, really apparent that, um, not having a sidekick in your life is, is just not as much fun as, as having somebody there. So I wasn't in any rush to like fill that gap per se, yeah. but definitely needed some adult um, entertainment, you know, like the, the adult side of me, it's like, I want to like go out and see people and have fun. So, yeah. um, so I ventured out and started dating. How did that go? <laughs> um, did you do the online dating thing or what'd you do? Um, so I met somebody that was a part of my world. Um, so it was kind of a comfortable thing. Um, it, the dating thing was interesting because uh, nobody would want to like ruffle any feathers or hurt anybody's feelings or whatever. So it's, you know, it's, it's really tricky when you're kind of, I don't want to say like in the spotlight, but like when I had our whole um, cancer journey was really public. So I had spoken a lot about it. Um, and so for, to be open about my personal life was really, really tricky. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So I, I ventured out and started dating and um, that it didn't go well at all. Did you it, tell your friends that you were dating or did you just kind of do it without saying announcing it or anything like that? I didn't have any intention of dating. It kind of just happened. Um, okay. I mean, I had thought about it. Um, I thought that like, I, I knew I was ready, but it kind of just fell in my lap. So um, I told my friends and they were great. My friends, you know, when I, when I first told them, um, or they first met, you know, whoever I was dating at the time, they initially broke down into tears. 
and I would cry with them. And we both went through this really emotional experience of like, this is so hard. They're like, this isn't what I pictured. And I'm like, I didn't picture this either. And it was awful. And then we worked through it together to say, yep, this is awful, but we have no choice and we can't go back. So, you know, I need somebody to play cards with when we're playing cards and, you know, like, so just normal life stuff. So um, they were all super, super supportive. Um, Unfortunately, the fire department was not so supportive. So they said a lot of things that hurt my feelings to say the least and were not. This was like mostly his crowd, like his friends. So yeah, what happened with, with all of them? So all of his close friends were supportive and are still in my life and are super supportive. Um, even the firefighters, um, you know, the ones that were in his wedding and um, the ones that, you know, were meant to be a part of our life forever, I guess. Um, those guys, they never batted an eye. They never flinched. You know, they, they welcomed whatever chaos was in my life into theirs. Um, and they supported me and were there to talk to me and they cried with me. And uh, yeah. And whatnot. So there were some key, key people in my support network from fire department and, and um, plenty of my friends outside of the fire department that were super supportive. So that was great. Um, and it was, it was nice to try to feel a little happy and Kyle's family was super, super supportive. Um, as much as you can be, I'm sure it's really hard for them to, to see that. And it, honestly, it's really freaking hard for me. It, it's gotta be the hardest for me. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't never wanted anybody else. It's not a place you want to be. That's not where your heart is. And it's not what you wanted. It's not what you wanted, but you can't be stuck where you were. You don't have what you had. So it takes a mental, a lot of therapy bills, a lot of friends (laughs) to kind of work through all those emotions and kind of accept your own life and your own reality and whatnot. So um, but the firefighters did, or many of them, I should say, again, not not all by any means. There are some amazing ones in every department that have that are still in my life. But mo- many, many of them um, chose to tell me that they would have done it differently. You know, the the ultimate answer that I was kind of told I was I was told that I was pissing on his grave and that they would never do that if they were in my position. And they all agreed when in speaking with their wives that if anything happens to any of them, that they would prefer that um, they wait for two years before they start dating. So they kind of just had these Are like, you kidding me right now. Yeah. Are you kidding me? They told you that there was a lot of um, phone calls that I had lots of tears, lots of loud raised voices on both ends. Um, you know, <gasps> I was really, really upset. You know. um, I offered to come in and speak to the fire department about it so that they could ask me questions. And they declined that and said that um, if anybody wanted to talk to me, then they would have their people reach out directly. Um, Oh my God, that is extreme. It was, it was intense. Yeah, it was definitely intense. Um, You know, when I did tell um, one of the wives, she said that it was such traumatic news for her that she couldn't possibly carry the burden of, of having that news by herself. So she had to share it with her husband and then he shared it with the whole department and they all just basically sat around discussing how they would never do what I'm doing. Discussing your personal dating life yeah, and, and what your what choices wild. are. <laughs> oh God. It, 
it was really wild to me because it was kind of like they were taking away the love that I have for Kyle. So here I was this whole year and nobody in the world can say that I wasn't like an amazing supporter for Kyle. He was my entire world. I did everything in the entire world for him. I put everything aside so that I could take care of him and I wouldn't do anything different. And I just, he's the absolute love of my life. So for anybody who sees me dating, what I wish that they would have said would have been, Hey Chris, I know how much you loved Kyle and I really don't understand how you're dating because it doesn't make any sense to me. How can you talk to me about this? And I would have said, absolutely. I understand how confusing it is. And I would have said the same thing if I were in your shoes, but I'm not. And Kyle and I had this conversation. We talked about moving forward. We talked about what happens if he dies. We talked about how life works. And, you know, when you're on the outside of this grief thing, it feels really hard. And, you know, like the fire department, the guy said, oh, it's really sad for us when we go into work. Well, they went into work two days a week. And then after a really hard day at work, they went home to their wife and their kids and their wife hugged them as they cried about the loss of their friend. What I did is wake up every single morning and look over to the other side of my bed and have it be empty. And every single morning I would put my feet on the ground and Kyle would be dead. I would brush my teeth and his toothbrush would be unused. I would pick up my kid and there'd be nobody to help me get him out of the crib. I'd walk downstairs and nobody made me coffee. I'd sit down and have coffee and have nobody to talk to. I would take out the trash with nobody to, do, to help me. The snow would come down and I'd have to go out and shovel and put my kid in a playpen in the snow so that I could clear the snow. Like every second of every single day when your partner died is that reality just being shoved down your throat forcefully. And it was absolutely horrific. So for all of the weeks and months and now years that these you know, that other people are grieving for the people like me who are in it that second, every day for another person is like one second of our grief. It's, yeah. it's every waking second that that pain was there. So, you know, things are, I don't want to say they're processed at a faster pace, but the reality you can't, you can't live in that denial stage for long because there is, there's no time to deny anything. You have to move to the next stage of grief because this is your reality and it's yeah. so intense. Yeah. So I wish that they had had that conversation with me, but they weren't open to doing so. They just chose to cut me out of their life instead. They chose to judge. Mm -hmm. they so they've never they been a part of No part of. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You know, when Kyle died, they all promised and they're like, Oh, we'll be there for Liam and, and your wife. And we'll make sure that they're taken care of. And the one piece of advice that I give to every single new widowed person who reaches out to me for support is, I know people were going to say that they're going to be there for you and they mean it. They wish that they will. They think they will be, but they won't. They can't because their life moves forward and yours doesn't. Your, your world stops spinning and they still have to take out their wife's trash. So the people are going to go away that all the energy that surrounds, you know, the, the community support and whatnot of like, Oh my goodness, this is so sad. Like let's all rally around you and support you. That's short lived. It goes away because everything returns to normal. 
And the first thing that everybody does is just sit back from their, their high horse at their homes with their wives and their husbands and whatnot and start saying, Oh, look, let's, let's watch how this goes. Let's, let's see how they're handling, you know, what, what's been thrown at them and they start judging you. And, you know, um, yeah. There's a bunch of great articles about it, you know, that I think are written like, but you end up, you start living in a glass house and everybody is just watching you yeah, and saying how they would do it if they, if they were in that situation. Well, then you get to this point where you're like, I'm writing these people out of my life. That's just the way that and it's going to be. I never wanted to write anybody out of my life. I just, they made it clear that they were looking for an apology from me. And I uh, can't possibly apologize to people for hurting them because I am living my life and they won't even honor, you know, a conversation. I, that I, that's not an apology that I can give out. So no, no. (laughs) And family has been amazing. Like I said, like, you know, my mother-in-law has never asked for an apology for my dating. She's says, I hope you're happy. Would you like me to, you know, how can I help? You know, they, I, my husband's family all still were very involved. So they, you know, come to Liam's birthday parties and they've met boyfriends of mine and been really supportive. Um, you know, they know, I think honestly, just how awful and hard this is for me too. It sucks for them. And I think, you know, sometimes when I look at them, I think that they really know how much it sucks for me to be in this situation too. Yeah. So and if I'm, I'm moving forward, they're doing it with me, which is all that I could ever ask. And then, um, you told me that, um, you were still in the back of your mind. You're like, I still, I'm, I want to have Kyle's baby. That's not changing. The plan yeah, is interesting. Gonna, the it's plan an interesting station to have. <laughs> well, how, how did that come up in, in any conversations with the guys that you were dating? Did you bring that up right away or did you like go out on a couple of dates and then talk about it or, you know? It was never something that I brought up like right away or whatever. But if I was serious with somebody like the first guy I dated, we definitely had that conversation. And, you know, we actually got to a point where he was like, you know, if this works, then he's like, I would be open to, you know, supporting you while you do that. And, you know, we, we don't have to break up because you want to have Kyle's baby. And I was like, well, that's really mature. Yeah. So, I mean, this whole life is just so complicated. But, and then I've had, I, you know, there were other guys who were like, I would never want anything to do with that. And I would never ask somebody per se to, to be a part of that. Um, it's just, I'm a pretty transparent person. And that was always something that I wanted to do. You know, I love Kyle so much. I, I, sorry, but I only want to have his baby. (laughs) So it kind of is what it is. Makes it a little bit complicated today. I am a complicated package. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then. You got to this point, oh, there's the baby. <laughs> and you got to this point um, just last year and you decided now is the time. So you want right. to do this. And that was fall of 2019. You kind of, yep. you started to try for mm-hmm. baby number two. And um, so what made you feel like this was the right time though? Uh, Liam was five and it was just, he was getting older and older by the year. It's like a thing that happens with these children of ours. And I was getting older and older by the year, you know, I was 36. Um, so it, it just, it was time. Yeah. Go time. Okay. 
And were your friends and family, they were supportive? Oh, yeah, yeah. for sure. They, most of them knew that this was always on as part of my plan anyway. Um, but yeah, no, they were, they were super supportive. Did anybody try to talk you out of it at that point? Never. I'm sure that there are people at home who didn't speak to my face. I can only imagine the things that people said. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. But that doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> but no, the people that are still in my life, no, I'm sure they were, they were beyond supportive. So it took about six months. Mm-hmm. And then you found out you were pregnant. You found out in February mm-hmm. of this year that you were pregnant. And then COVID hits like a month later. Right. Um, how did you handle all of that? Just like everything else. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's just one more thing. You know, how do I work? My kid's school got closed. I'm pregnant. I can't have any wine. It's, there's a pandemic. I was supposed to take Liam on our first vacation together away that um, literally the week after COVID shut the world down. We were supposed to go to, um, on a Disney cruise and we canceled that. Um, so yeah, it was just, it was, it was quite the time. Yeah. You told me that it was a COVID, you're like, oh, that's nothing compared to what I've been through before. (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, when you've been through cancer, like if you were to ask any human, you'd say, what's the worst thing that could happen to you? Cancer. There's literally nothing worse. Cancer to you or your loved ones. So at least that was always my logic. Like there's literally nothing worse than cancer. So been there, done that. We already had the very worst of it. So it puts everything in perspective. So everything in life is a little less scary and, you know, it literally dying isn't that scary because the love of my life already died. So nothing is that scary. COVID is like, okay. It's, I mean, it's a really big deal and I don't want anyone to get sick or die or anything, but it's as far as like my acute stress, like I'm so used to high levels of stress. It just, this is, it's what we do. (laughs) So So when was the baby born? September 28th. September 28th. And what is her name? Kylie. Kylie, of course. Mm-hmm. You wanted a sister, right? We did. I told him he had to ask daddy to send this one down. So he asked him and Aww. he uh, got his wish. Yeah. And then you told when you were telling me about Kylie and that she's this gift to the world mm-hmm. um, because you wanted to bring more of him into it. That was just something that you said. I was, that just really touched my heart, you know? Yeah. And Kyle, like I said, he was just the most amazing human being ever. And I was just so, so lucky to have him. And I know I, I say that all the time, but I just, I can't help, even though I've been through such pain, I can't help but feel so blessed that I had him in my life and that we've had that love. I feel like I'm like the luckiest person in so many ways. So, you know, I have this amazing son that he made for me and he's a spitting image of him. He's hilarious and gentle and wonderful, just like him. And to be, to have the opportunity to bring another piece of Kyle into this world is just, it's a gift to the world. I mean, he, he's just so wonderful to have more of him here is I'm doing everybody a favor by bringing pieces of him back. He's just that wonderful. Oh, that's awesome. That is awesome. Well, I have some questions for you that we're going to, we're going to follow up with here. Um, So question number one. When people look you in the eyes, what do you hope they see? 
I would hope that they see some, they see strength, resilience, and compassion. I think that everything, my little baby noise in the background, you know, those, that's what cancer, cancer, you know, um, teaches you. And I think widowhood teaches the same, the same things, or it solidifies those learnings. And question number two, who has influenced your life the most since becoming a widow? Um, the person who kind of, um, formed my perspective and really set me on the path to choose joy in this life was, um, the one fit widow blogger, Michelle, how do you say her last name? I'm not sure. It's like Baumgart Steinke. I'm butchering that. I'm sorry. Um, but she, her writings were amazing and, um, she, really showed me that you can survive this all and that there's no point in just living in that really dark, horrible hole and to pull yourself out of it and to choose joy. So that is my kind of widow motto is to choose joy. Oh, love that. Love that. Um, Number three, Christmas is coming up and a lot of widows really struggle with this time of year and getting through the holidays. What's some advice that you can give other widows on how to get through the holidays? Because this is kind of tough. Like, tell us what your first Christmas looked like. Yeah. So I think the best advice that I have followed was, um, again, another writer that really helped me set me on my journey was, um, Christina Rasmussen. She, um, writes um what is her blog called um it's it's second firsts um is her kind of um page she wrote an article called i believe it was her that wrote this don't get on the anniversary train and that was one that i really sunk my teeth into and it basically is just stop looking at these firsts every single thing that you're doing as like this negative thing where you're just like oh my god this is when the person died and this is whatever so I kind of try to focus on that stuff when it comes to the holidays and how, you know, how I'm going to live. I guess it's not like I try not to count down the minutes and be like, this is the first whatever with, without him. And this is the second, whatever without him. And when you live in the bone marrow transplant world, you live every day by counting. So I had counted, it was T plus however many days, the transplant plus however many days um, was kind of how I lived my life up until a certain point when I, kind of had read some of this um, literature about, you know, not counting the days and not counting these, um, these, you know, events. Um, I decided to stop counting the days. So Christmas was Christmas and we were able to enjoy it as a family and and try to create new routines. And, and um, yeah, it was, it was tricky though, for sure. You know, it's hard when you have your first year with nothing in your stocking and no presents under the tree, you know, yes. from Santa. And I mean, my mother-in-law is a great Santa fill-in, but um, it's, it's not quite the same. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And it's hard to make your brain not think about the, the first and the anniversary and the day and the dates. Mm-hmm. It's like those you things. have to work hard to not do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what advice would you give another widow who's considering doing what you're doing about having a baby on their Um, their own, you know, I would say it's definitely doable and, um, it's, it's an amazing 
blessing and gift to be able to do it. Um, I know we have a Facebook group of a support group just for women who are trying to conceive posthumous um, babies. Really? From, what is it? Mm-hmm. What's the name of that one? Can you um, it's yeah, it's Miracle Babies um, is the name of the group, and it's um, I forget exactly what it is, but it's um, you know about posthumous birth conception. Yeah. So mir- Miracle Babies. Okay. Yeah. On Facebook. All right. And I'll put yeah. a link to that too in yeah. the show notes so that everybody can, can go to that. Cause I'm sure that support that's, that's amazing. I didn't know that it existed, but I, yeah. yeah. Makes yeah, sense. So it's a small group. <laughs> There's not very many, <laughs> um, but you know, however many of us are, you know, it's, it's great support, but um I would say, you know, if you have the ability, you know, to do it, then, then do it. Um, it. Life was really hard when my husband had cancer and I raised this baby, you know, more or less and while helping him through chemo and stuff. So yeah. doing it on your own is something I'm pretty familiar with. And now with this baby, I, it's not easy. There's no breaks. There's nobody to take the baby when she's crying. There's nobody to help me when she's, when I'm tired, there's nobody to make a bottle. There's nobody to do anything. So, but it's, it's been five years. I've never had anybody to do any of that stuff. So right. it is what it, right. you just kind of get used to it. You know, this is my life. My, my kids are my little sidekicks and, and, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Christine, I can't thank you enough for being on the show today and for talking to us. I know there's a lot of widows out there listening that really needed to hear this story and your perspective on everything. And it's going to help a ton of people. And, you know, it's one of the hardest things about being a widow is having to make these huge decisions about your life and what you want that picture to look like and what would make you happy um, just making all those decisions on your own. And, um, it's not an easy thing. No, I hate making decisions on my own. That's one of the hardest parts of being a widow. Every decision. (laughs) Yeah. But being brave enough to, to step forward and do what you're doing and do what you really want to do, you know, without, yeah, I think it's, I think it's amazing what you did. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you so for much having for sharing with us today. And um, sure. thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Bye. All right, Christine, I will talk to you later. Okay. Sure. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Bye. I'm so glad I had a chance to talk to Christine. Here are the takeaways from the episode. Number one, Christine's husband, Kyle was diagnosed with T cell lymphoma and was told it was because he was a firefighter and was exposed to so many carcinogens over the years. Number two, many states have a law called presumptive cancer law, where a diagnosis of a certain type of cancer is covered under workman's comp. So they would receive those benefits and they would also get a line of duty death. New Hampshire didn't have this law in place at the time, so Christine fought to have that law passed in her state. Number three, the firefighter community and other community members rallied and did enough fundraising to pay for their living expenses and apartment in Manhattan during Kyle's treatments there. Number four, Kyle and Christine decided to bank some sperm when they started doing the chemo treatments. And Christine and Kyle talked a lot about her having another baby without him. And she knew in her heart that this was something that she was meant to do. Number five, 
I asked her what her biggest struggle was as a solo parent. And she said it was creating her support network. That was the hardest thing for her. It was finding enough reliable babysitters and creating a new routine and a new normal for her and her baby. Number six, Christine decided to start dating again because she says life is always better with a sidekick. Number seven, Liam got his wish for a baby sister and baby Kylie was born on September 28th, 2020. Number eight, Christine found comfort reading blog posts and there were a couple of different ones that she really, really loved. Um, The first one was Christina Rasmussen's blog and the second one was the One Fit Widow blog and these really helped Christine focus on a path to choosing joy. And one piece of widow advice that she tries to follow, especially during the holidays, is don't get on the anniversary train, which is tough to do as a new widow. Number nine, Christine mentioned a Facebook group called Miracle Babies. So if you are a widow and you're thinking about having a baby on your own, this would be a really good uh, support group for you to have. So it's Miracle Babies on Facebook. And... I know that for some of you, this Thanksgiving was a first without your husband, and now we're coming up on Christmas. I know it's hard. I know what you're going through. I know exactly how it feels, and I want to encourage any of you who may need some extra help and guidance to join our email list. So go to www.widow180.com. And you can find us on Facebook at the Widow 180 Community or on Instagram at Widow 180, where you can find some extra resources there. Or you can email me at Jen at Widow180.com. Thanks for listening, you guys. Bye and have a great week. Thank you so much for listening to Widow 180, the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you're seeking daily inspiration and guidance, you can follow me on Facebook at Widow 180, the community, on YouTube at Widow 180, the channel, and on Instagram at Widow 180. If you're interested in more grief and widowhood resources, including our latest freebie, How to Get Your Life Back Together After Loss, a 10-step checklist, head over to www.widow180.com forward slash freebie. That's www.widow180.com forward slash freebie.